This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. music you're hearing is the biggest song by one of the biggest bands in the world of the last 40 years. In the 1980s, R.E.M. was the epitome of the artful alternative band, producing a string of beautiful, if occasionally inscrutable albums, and slowly evolving over time. But then came the album Out of Time, R.E.M.'s true arrival as global rock stars, riding largely on the strength of Losing My Religion, which was in constant rotation on TV and radio throughout 1991. The record is now being reissued, and it was the moment lead singer Michael Stipe stepped out with a bit more confidence into his role as frontman. Both intensely private and flamboyantly public, Stipe led the band through 20 more years of bold experimentation, massive success, and the occasional misstep, but never insincerity. R.E.M. disbanded in 2011, and for the last five years, Stipe has channeled his new time and energy into photography, teaching, and politics. And while his songs will almost certainly last in the cultural memory for a very long time, Stipe himself has even longer-term ambitions, like living until he's 120. I think that, you know, I think the way things are advancing, it would be possible to live a happy life well into your hundreds. If 95 was the outer edge and you go to 120, that's another 25 years. <laughs> what are all the things you want to do in those 25 years? I would hope that I inherited from my mother a great curiosity about the world. And I've watched her uh, age and remain curious and, and want to keep learning and growing. And, and I would hope that I would have that. 
Now, you were an army child. Yeah, army brat. I don't know. Yeah, army, I'll let you say brat. <laughs> was most of the nurture and so forth from your mom because she was, she, was she more on the scene and dad was gone all the time? Or no, did you pick up things from him too? He came and went a lot. But what, what being an army brat did to myself and my sisters was to create a, a, probably a closer family dynamic than regular people have. Because we picked up and moved so much that we were we were the foundation. Um, it made you closer. It made us much closer, and so I'm very, very, a very lucky man in that regard. I'm one of the ones who I like. I landed like I got the gold ring, and when it comes to family, yeah, really? yeah. You're, you're, you have two sisters, two sisters. So the three of you total. Yeah. And are they around? You see them? Are they or are they off in like Alaska and Fiji? Where no, they, the whole family lives in <clears throat> Athens, Georgia. And, they're in Athens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. Athens. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Forty Watt Club. Yeah, it's I amazing. know Athens. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, wasn't Mike? Was Mike from Athens? Mike Mills. Yeah. Actually, from Macon. But Macon. We all met at college. You all were from. We all met at UGA. Yeah. yeah. Um, of the places I read that you lived when you were moving around in yeah. Europe and in the South and so forth, was there one place you stayed the longest? Um, do you have a recollection, a memory of a place you were in? Do, well, you remember, know, do you remember Germany? Yeah, I remember Germany more than anywhere, really, I think. Uh, Germany and then, well, it's hard to say because I'm, um, I kind of see everything. So, I, But then I don't really remember everything. But Germany was, for me, a time that I feel like I remember almost every single day that we were there, which was about just under two years. How old were you? Seven and eight. How old were you when you'd say... I'm not a musician. I don't play music, but I feel like I have, you know, Elvis lives inside me. You know, I have, I have this desire, like everybody, everyone wishes they could sing and get up there and perform and have that effect on people. And um, you'd hear MacArthur Park. Mm, you know, Richard song. Harris would sing MacArthur Amazing. Park. And I go, God, I remember listening to that song on a transistor radio. Yeah. And I go back and look up the date and I go, oh my God, I was nine. Yeah. It's so much younger. It's in you so much younger. Can you can you remember when how old you were when you let that in? And well, for starters, what a great song to reference. I mean, that's one of those really insanely bizarre pop songs that you know. Here's a guy that doesn't sing. He's he's a drunk most of his life. He's a he's brilliant, and for some Crazy. reason, for some reason, the songwriter tags him to sing this insanely beautiful song about nothing about a cake with green icing that's melting in the rain <laughs> it's really it's heavy. If, no wonder if, it went in yeah i love that song and i love the song and the guy who wrote it was one of one of our great american songwriters jimmy webb i did i did an interview with him once uh, for a book that he wrote and, and uh, he called me on the phone to talk about songwriting and we had an hour to talk and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. He talked the entire time. I couldn't wait for the book to come out to see what I had said because I, I don't remember having said anything. It was, right. it was pretty pretty good. But but do you remember uh, like an age? Was there, is there a, a time in your life when you remember? When music came in. Music comes in. It was always there. Um, my my earliest memories before the, the my kind of ground zero point was at the age of 15 when Patti Smith released Horses. Horses right. And I bought it the day it came out. But prior to that, the songs that really resonated with me on radio were um, the Banana Splits, the Archies. Um, you know, it was really kind of crappy, beautiful <laughs> pop music. The Monkees. The Monkees. Yeah. I didn't have a brother or sister who turned me on to The Who and, and, and Alice Cooper and um, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, uh, where my bandmates did have that. I listened to what kids listened to and what the cereal boxes were telling you was music. 
Um, but following that, it was really um, Benny and the Jets by Elton John. And the song, um, Hey Kids, Boogie Too, Jump Up and Down in Blue Suede Shoes. Rock On by David Rock Essex. By David Essex. Which I kind of rewrote as the song Drive on Automatic for the People. It opens, the, it opens that record. And um, uh, I rewrote that song. I rewrote a bunch of songs from the 70s and songs that I remembered. Like Everybody Hurts was my take on um, Love Hurts. Kind of a direct lift there, but, but uh, it turned into a very different song. And do you learn to play an instrument? I played accordion when I was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Well, I wanted to play organ, but um, we couldn't afford the next instrument up, so I wound up with an accordion. And I played quite well. You were an accomplished accordionist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been on Sullivan. Yes. <laughs> now, when, now but, but as many people, their entry into music is whether it's, you know, they pick up a guitar... And there's obviously a discipline, a curiosity. I'm always mesmerized by this, by men and women who they pick up a guitar when they're 9 and 10 years old and then just start to explore that. Mm-hmm. Or beyond that, in a more traditional way, someone's parents are saying, sit down at that piano and you're going to do this lesson for mm-hmm. a year and grind them down until they break through and they can really play the piano. Then they're grateful that they have this skill that uh, uh, attracts all these people. Um, was there anything like that for you? There was no formal musical training? None. So thus you knew, is, is, is it safe to assume, did you always know you wanted to be a singer? No. 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 Um, the, whole, the whole idea of punk rock was that anybody could do this, that it, was, it wasn't this kind of wholly handed down from on high talent or skill. Um, and I was and remained quite literal. And so when they said anybody can do this, I said, okay, I'll do it. And I, I guess I was too lazy to learn an instrument. Do you believe that everybody, anybody can do it? No, absolutely not. Right. What, what changed? Everybody can sing, uh, but right. I don't really want to hear it. Right. Um, what changed? When I, did you realize you could sing? Well, I, honestly, about 10 years ago, I realized that my voice was that specific. I never, through most of our career, I didn't understand why people liked my voice or thought or could. could I just didn't know that my voice was that different. And it's a very different voice. It's a very recognizable voice. So when you were singing in, in, the, in the beginning of your career... It was awful. Right. We, were, uh, we were terrible. I mean, I sang rockabilly. You mentioned Elvis Presley earlier. I was singing in this kind of hiccup uh, Elvis Presley style, probably inspired by the cramps. I, I loved Lux Interior, and I loved the cramps, and I saw them perform on, I think, one of the first shows they ever did outside of New York City. And, um, and I thought he was just amazing, and they were incredible. So I kind of picked up that rockabilly thing. Um, but I don't think I really developed a voice, uh, until my, well, people that love murmur would argue with that. But anyway, I didn't feel confident with my voice until probably the third or fourth album, which was six years in. When you were at UGA with the other three, what do you think that they saw in you that they picked you for that job? Well, it sounds arrogant to say it, but charisma. It was that, that, right. that je ne sais quoi that we all know when someone walks into a room. Or, right. And when I walk into a room, I don't have that. But when I'm on stage performing with that band behind me, it was... It just was the chemistry between all of us. It really was. And you opened your mouth and sang those songs with those guys and something happened. Yeah. You believe that? Yeah. How did you find each other? Um, clubs? A record store. A record store, yeah. right. You saw Mills in a record store. No, no Peter uh, Buck. P- Peter Buck, rather, yeah. in a record store. Yeah, and he looked really cool. And a lot of people back then didn't look really cool, but he looked really cool. And um, he would 
you know, he would turn me on to different records that, that would come into the store and, and like Suicide, the first Suicide album. And we hit it off. And, um, and then I had to convince him to start a band with me. What was it about horses that appealed to you? I can't say. I, I mean, outside of, you know, I, I had really good taste, as it turns out. I mean, it's one of the greatest records ever made. And, and I did buy it and listen to it on the day that it was released, which is kind of crazy. But um, You've spoken about the cover art appeal to you, too. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible image. Uh, but she represented something other and something, to me, alien. And part of that was this... this um, uh, openness, this fluidity about sexuality that I think certainly resonated with me and with, with millions of other people who were questioning their sexuality or, or, or emerging into something that they weren't familiar with or something that wasn't, at the time, uh, quite accepted or acceptable. We're doing her on this show in front of a live audience out oh, in New Jersey. She's a, she's a great conversation, <laughs> yeah. But um, You related to that image. It, yeah, it, it, it struck the me. Other. Really, really the third song, I think it, it was Birdland. Is the song that touched me in a way that um, I don't think anything had ever touched me before, and I stayed up all night listening to it. I went to school the next day, and I said, "That's that's what I'm going to do. That's that's it." And then I, it took me two years to find people that I could play with. Um, that didn't work out very well. I I wound up moving to Athens, uh, following my father's retirement, and um, and um, started the band. And when you leave Athens, I mean, you, there's a a kind of gestation there in, in Athens and performing in clubs in all over Georgia? Are you like, well, what kind of, do you, what's, the, what's the circuit you get into there when you're at that level? Well, it was early days, um, uh, so there wasn't really a circuit. I mean, one was kind of cobbled together by bands like R.E.M. and Pylon, also from Athens, and Black Flag, Sonic Youth. Um, all these bands were playing, like, these pizza parlors and gay, gay discos and kind of anywhere that would let a band set up in a corner. Music is very different then than it is now in the way that music is consumed and the way that it's marketed and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most bands, I mean, the, you, yours could be different. I don't know. I want to find that out. Most bands enter into a business agreement in order to take them to the next plateau. That's disadvantageous for them. Did that happen to you? No. Um, when you started signing with people, did you maintain all the rights to all your publishing? Yeah. You did? Yeah, and we own our masters, yeah. which Prince never did, and he always hated me for. But um, uh, Peter and Mike particularly were encyclopedic about um, about music, and they had read every biography and knew every in and out of every story of a band that got so far, and then it fell apart because of this or this reason, and they were determined to prevent that from happening to us. Who did you sign with? Who was your first label you signed with? The first label was um, that we signed with was IRS Records, Miles Copeland. Um, and he was very generous looking back. I mean, I'd, we didn't like each other very much at the time, but he allowed us... Why? The, well, he was a business guy, and I, I wasn't that interested in the business part of what was going on. Uh, I just wanted to do what we did, and I wanted to do it our way. And Who in the band was taking care of business? Mike? No, we had uh, we had a manager and a lawyer who were helping us, and so nobody in the band you had to rely on people you trusted to take care of that, right. and it all worked out well. You were happy. We were really lucky in in that regard, and you know we we kept our eye on it and and didn't allow those things that break up bands to break us up. So we had a really long, great career, and 
chose the time to disband, and and I think we even did. There was that. a time you almost broke up, we, though, correct? We even did that, right? Oh um, yeah, I mean, over and over again, sure. every record. Well, but, but, right. So, so describe for people who don't know, and I really don't care about the the um, the kind of tedious details of mm. it or the personal details of it. But you know, you look at a movie like Let It Be, and you don't see people storming out. You don't see people yelling at each other. You don't see the negativity. They've obviously. Uh, left that out or that it was never captured on camera. When people are making an album and there's that kind of attention for yeah. people who don't understand the, the music business, uh, as per- particularly the rock and roll business, what, what typically happens? What do people get? Well, I can't speak for the... Be- I've never seen Let It Be. I'm sorry. Right, but I'm, I'm, not, for I'm, you. Not, I'm not a giant fan, but... Um, but um, You're not a what fan? I'm not a giant fan of the Beatles. I mean, I, I understand. I recognize what they did, but I, I never... They never touched me from the beginning, and so I never kind of... You know, I feel the same way about Captain Beefheart. It just never really was my thing. Um, but they wrote some good songs, that's for sure. I mean, Let It Be might have been before reality TV, or or it was was that before or after um, American Family? No, the yeah, that was that was the early seventies. Lance Loud, yeah. What's the one that was done about Bob Dylan? That um, was it? Pennebaker did followed Bob Dylan, and there were, there was there was some kind of people walking out of rooms and insulting each other and what have you. But when you had conflicts with people you make music with, what is the conflict typically over? I, I mean, I, I was very young and 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 um, and very shy, and so I I would just shut down. I would go into a kind of a quiet, you know, I would I would be silent for three days, which nobody wanted because it made it it made everything impossible. Those guys, you know, were were more loud and um, often got their way, but it but often it kind of pulled me out of you know we were in a in a in a band dynamic. Everyone's got an idea and an opinion and what happened what what happens when it all comes together is this this beautiful compromise where one person over kind of oversees one part another oversees another part somehow it all works and that's who's chemi- the conductor who that's, decides that's chemistry so that chemistry served us pretty well for most of our career but but it was you know it was at times very very difficult and and it, and and I'm proud of this the the, the the times that we failed, we failed horribly, and but we own that. You know, we didn't blame the other guy. We didn't blame the industry. We didn't blame uh, radio. We just agreed that we had not made the best record or the best song or the best recording. Some of my favorite recordings of our work is not what wound up on records, but what wound up in live performances. Such as? The song Lotus is a, is a good example of a song that we recorded. Lotuses. Lotus is the name of the song, and it's a good song, but it's way too long on the record. Uh, it's too slow, which is my fault. And we recorded it uh, and, and, and mixed it at a time when we weren't really talking to each other. So it was very difficult to get um, to, to, to arrive at a place that made sense. Live, the song is faster. We're adrenalized because we're performing it in front of 20,000, 30,000 people or whatever, and um, and it got a lot better. It got a real lot better. So for my money, you know, the recording of that song is kind of this interesting document of, of, of a moment in time, but the, but, but the real song emerged in, in, in live performance. I, I mean, because I don't, I don't know anything about this, and I only see what I see in films or television or what have you, is there a producer or, I mean, like, who decides yeah, especially in the early days before you become big stars, like who's sitting there sitting there going, well, you're going to come in here and you look, drop that note down a little bit. Who's, who's the decider? We always, we, we always had final say. We always had final cut on everything. So all of our records were 
produced with a producer, but we were co-producing. So the band had final say and final cut. Was there one of you who had a better ear than the other in terms of how this music should be mixed? Did somebody have a gift for that? No. Right. No. Everybody had an opinion. Yeah. Right. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Did you like performing live? I loved it. Yeah. Right. What's the first time you performed live? Because Murmur becomes the album of the year from Rolling Stone. You beat out Thriller. Yeah. To become the album I know. of the year. Incre- incredible. <laughs> yeah, I was 23. That was, that was, How did you feel about of, that? I wanted to crawl into a hole and bury myself. I mean, you didn't was, want to be famous? No, I wanted to be famous, but, I, but my idea of You fame, did want to be famous? Of course I did. My idea of fame was this kind of teenage fantasy version of it. It didn't require all the work and all the scrutiny and all the kind of, like, all the stuff. Like, being able to look you in the eye and sit here and talk about myself is something that it took decades for me to be able to do, and that, that's not my nature. But um, Why do you think it's not your nature? Well, I mean... You are a shy person. Yeah, yeah, I, I still am, but right. I've, I've managed over the course of 56 years to kind of emerge... I always say to people... Some I mean, version I, I, of adulthood. But I say to people, I think I am a shy person, and they look at me and they go, you're kidding, you're, and I, you're go, out of your mind. I, go, I just overcame <laughs> it so extraordinarily... <laughs> The thing you figure out when you're around a lot of creative people is is that if you're a creator, you have to create. It's not a choice. It's not something that you do because you want to be famous. It's something that, or because you want to be rich, or because you want to be recognized for some for this or that. You create because you have to, and maybe that's what separates the wheat from the chaff when it comes to um, uh, a culture that now allows people to be famous just for the fact of being famous, or that. You're, you're acknowledged and, and recognized for something other than a talent or a thing that you can offer that's unique or interesting. One time I did a, a concert-style version of South Pacific, and it was Reba McIntyre and Brian Stokes Mitchell are the leads, and we're there. And Paul Gemignani's there conducting this orchestra. It was it was, it was was like a 90-piece orchestra. Wow. And they go, okay, are we ready? We're going to rehearse, and we're going to sing. And they call up someone, so we're going to sing Bally High. And all of a sudden, this orchestra would be like, banana! And the music would play behind. I'm sitting there in a chair. The orchestra's five feet behind me. And I get this chill that just shoots right up my skull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh my God, this is music, you know? What was the first time you stepped out in front of a stadium crowd? What was your first big My first Valley High moment. What was your first Paul, <laughs> Jim, and Yanni moment? Um, we, one, of the, one of the things that Miles Copeland, who had IRS Records, did was he put us on a, um, on a bill at Shea Stadium. Uh, with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts opening for the police. So we played to 60,000 people. We had we played five songs. I said I would do it if I could wear a wedding dress. Someone someone had offered me, someone said, I dare you for $100, which at the time was a very, very large amount of money to me. I dare you to wear a wedding dress. I said, I'm going to fucking do it. So I went looking for a wedding. I couldn't find one. I found a tuxedo. So I wore a tuxedo instead. A really ratty tuxedo. Did, did you I tell the guys it. in the band you had planned on wearing a wedding yeah, dress? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were cool with it. They were fine with they it. Didn't they care. didn't care. They didn't give a fuck. Right. Um, they wanted you to be you. But, but I, I, I remember it because it was raining, uh, and we had five songs, and we had, and it was this giant place. And to the band, it meant everything because the Beatles had, had famously performed there. To me, it was just this big outdoor show. It was your wedding day. <laughs> it was my wedding day, right, as it turns out. And my dress was... You were getting married to 60,000 people. My dress wasn't starched. Um, How did it feel? You know what's interesting is that I don't really remember the show so much. I remember the backstage, what was happening. Andy Warhol was there. That was thrilling for me. 
um, Matt Dillon was there. And this was after, not The Outsiders, what was the, um, Rumblefish. Rumblefish. He had done Rumblefish. And, and I was a huge fan. And he was kind of like hanging out in, in between these two trailers. One was ours, the other was Joan Jett's. And I was like, wow, Joan Jett knows Matt Dillon. How exciting is that? And we were kind of peeking through the window. And then there was a knock at the door. And it was Matt Dillon. And he was a big REM fan. So he sat with us and we talked for a long time. And I was kind of touched by that. Very touched by that. That's what I really remember. The kind of adrenalized, ballet high moment. I, I mean, put me in front of any number of people and I would get that adrenaline rush and I kind of would go into a trance. Radiohead's lead singer Tom York told me he was in awe of Michael Stipe's onstage persona. He'd stand there for the first two tunes, barely move. He was a sort of lightning conductor and he was just waiting for it to hit. And then when it hit, he was off. You can hear that whole interview at heresthething.org. Coming up, Michael Stipe talks about how REM became politically aware and discusses his fear of collage. Yes, collage. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parrish, from my new series, Parrish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver. Yeah! I'm retired from life. You know that. His business is failing. His house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger. And we want to feel as if anything could happen. 
Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money, and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head. Now, let's go! He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is the singer and artist Michael Stipe. When fellow rock frontman Eddie Vedder inducted Stipe into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007, he had this to say. Such wisdom in, in the feelings of these songs that I, I think they helped us find things that we knew were inside us. And I can say that personally, there are things that I hold and feel very deeply about inside here that Michael Stipe put in there himself. This all happens without ever being able to understand a f- thing he was saying. When I think of you and your music, it's the beauty and the love, the romance, the passion, all of it goes up to a certain point and you will not get sentimental about it. You're the least sentimental performers. It's there and you go right up to the precipice and there's not, it's not sentimental. I could cry right now. Thank you for saying that. I'm a very sentimental person and I, and I despise sentimentality. I despise nostalgia. Uh, Do you agree that that's a hallmark of the music you guys make? I w- I'm very flattered that you say that we go to that line and we never cross it. In my, in my most critical, closer than anybody I know. Well, thank you. In my most critical moments, I would say, well, no, we crossed it many times, and and not so, um, not so gracefully. But, but I appreciate that. That's a huge compliment as a writer. That's a huge compliment, and as a singer, because you can, the way the way something is performed, the way you put it down on tape, really can can make or break it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of someone who's very, very brilliant with that. I think Sia um, is brilliant with the way she uses her voice. There are other singers through, throughout our lives, and we don't have to name names, who have amazing voices but have no idea how to use them. Or they overuse them, or their producers, they do that crack at the high note every single time, and by the end of the song, you're exhausted. Um, yeah, there's you, a thing they do. There's a thing. Now, when, you're, when your music is, when you're moving along regardless of after murmur and after you start to take off and and really make it Mm -hmm. one of the things i'm always curious about for uh highly successful musicians of whatever type of music is is music in your life other people's music and then the obligation and or, or even just the ambition to now drive your music to the next level does it push other music out or have you always listened to music and it's a really good question, and I'm going to answer it honestly. There's a point where I stopped being able to listen to other music, and it wasn't because I was afraid I was going to um, accidentally imitate or steal something from someone. Music became uninteresting to me. Now that I don't make music anymore, I'm able to listen to music. I'm able to read novels uh, and books. I'm able to absorb myself into TV shows and films that I just didn't have time for. I mean, I, I realized when R.E.M. disbanded five years ago, it took me about six months to recognize how much of 
how much of a creative kind of fog I had been in with that band. I'm such a perfectionist. I'm such a control freak. I oversaw every aspect of the band, and and along with Peter and Mike and and Bill when he was there. Um, but it it completely consumed my every waking thought the entire time that that band was going, and so other things fell fell away. And I think I became a little bit of a less interesting person for now working having a life that allowed me to not write a song about being on the road or being in a band or write songs about the industry of music, which is the most pathetically boring thing you could possibly, you know, focus on, but people do. One of my favorite songs that we ever wrote is called Supernatural, Super Serious. And it's this insanely beautiful narrative, really beautiful narrative about innocence and teenage ideas and how those are flattened uh, or dismissed or disregarded as an adult and then you come back it comes back at some point and you realize you're still that person so that's all in this lyric for me i probably need to write a little short story to go along with it for anybody that listens to the song because i'm not sure that i successfully managed to get all that into the lyric have you ever thought about writing a book like that where you explicate all the lyrics of your songs or i'm actually doing it uh, but i'm not doing a very good job of it i have to say (laughs) maybe you need some help (laughs) well I'm, uh, as, as you may have figured out in this conversation, I, I think in a very um, circuitous and tangential way. And so I'll always come back to my point, but I lose most people in the way. I, I have great stories and I'm a terrible storyteller. <laughs> now, the, um, you are very well known and legendary, if you will, for your passions about causes. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are involved in causes. Yeah. And... Um, when does that begin for you in your career? When you say to yourself, "I can't keep my mouth shut. I want to start talking about this." Well, it was it was the Reagan it was the Reagan era, and the country was falling apart in a way that that was quite evident. And we were then, as as a band, traveling overseas, representing America, and getting shit thrown at us for you know the cruise missiles that were being sent over and put into position in parts of Europe. People were very very unhappy about that. We became politicized quite quickly as a band. Um, and, you know, we I'm a child of the 70s. You know, we came out of a place where um, everything that the 60s was, and this is, I think, perfectly encapsulated. Again, we'll talk about Patti Smith for a moment. But when she wrote Just Kids, that book to me is like the big chill, but for sentimental douchebags, for people that, for people that lived through it and were at one point told, you're a sellout. And you have to get a job and all of your dreams and aspirations, everything that you thought you could do with this thing is flatlined. Go get a job. Just Kids provided those people with the first, for the first time, I think, a way of looking at themselves as children, as teenagers, as young people again and saying that innocence was quite beautiful. And in fact, we were right. Things didn't go our way, but we had a place. The people that dropped out in the 60s and then had to get jobs, became the people that were teaching me in 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. And so in the early 70s in America, in public school, there was a very clear understanding that it was our job to talk about and fix uh, what became dr- dramatic climate change issues, energy problems, uh, the linchpin of what's going all, on. Everything. But I, I, had a, I had an entire year-long course called Environmental Science taught by Miss Enoch. And it was, there, was a, there was a textbook, 
And it was taught in public schools, in Texas anyway. Uh, as a 12, 13-year-old, I knew uh, about all this energy stuff. And, and so then as an adult, you know, you, you, you become politicized quite quickly when you travel outside of the country. And, and that's what happened to us. Are you still are you still speaking out on some issues right now? Are you still working with organizations now? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, what are you I, doing currently? I was a big supporter of Bernie Sanders and, and went out and advocated for him and for his campaign. Um, I mean, it's so sad that we have allowed ourselves to to sink to this level of really entertainment. That's what it is. I blame media completely for it, including Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Sorry to say it. But Lay it on I, me, baby. No, but I wanted to ask. I mean, this is really what 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 does it feel like from inside? What does it feel like playing that character? Uh, it's satire. It's brilliantly done, but it's still adding to the kind of push. cynicism. It's adding to the push of of you know Warhol said. I think Andy Warhol said, "There's no such thing as bad publicity." How have we created this monster? How how have we put our particular American brand onto? this thing well there's two things that come to mind one is when i was approached by lauren who's a friend of mine to do it yeah. my first impulse was no because in order to do that effectively you need to have some appreciation of the person so if i do wow. tony bennett if i do pacino or yeah. de niro or this one or that one whatever you can achieve or even kind of achieve uh, uh, half-assed it's there's some kernel of appreciation for which trump i have none now yeah. the uh the show and giving people that chance i have had a a uh, obviously a wave of people i've had a, it's it's kind of unsettling to me actually uh how many people come up to me all day long and they thank me because they say we needed something to laugh about they needed a release yeah. um see i think that uh i pray to god that hillary clinton wins for only one reason and i never thought i could sink i could distill it down to one reason but that the court the court is the key to everything we have to keep her accountable yeah, but, but but I agree with you that yeah that there's there there, there are some very problematic issues with I'm, her as well. I'm not a big fan, right? I, right. But, tell, I, but, but tell me, was there something specifically? What, what are well, some I once them? was, and but we have got to. I think all of us have to go and vote, uh, if not for someone, against someone, and we all have to vote against Donald Trump. That's that. I say that as a Sanders supporter, by the way. But I'm going to vote. I'm gonna Sanders vote for had a her. chance. I'm going to vote for her. Sanders had a chance, and in 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 a telegenic age, where the two where the two nominees now are old, Sanders looked even. Oh, I mean, I had a friend of mine turn to me, and he said to me, he goes, he doesn't have a chance. I said, why? He goes, people don't want Geppetto to be the president of the United States. <laughs> and I thought, okay, if you want to look at it that way, his would, have, his would have been a flawed administration as well. Right. But but it would have been, I think, it would have been flawed in something that is more it would have been braver. Yeah, it would have certainly been braver. Um, I was talking to other people who work in your business, which and like my business, which is a very youth-centered business in terms of the performing and mm -hmm. the whole the arc of it. And all of us, as we get older in this business, it changes. Was there a moment that you realized it started to change for you? Not even in terms of people's perception of you and their response to you, your response to it. Did you sit there one day and go, I don't really know if I want to do this anymore this way? Many times. Uh, <laughs> as, an, as an older person in a you know rock and roll band for, or pop band, uh, yeah, there's a point where I said, this is, this is not, um, this doesn't look good. This is not a good look. And I, we, I, we have to either grow with it and be who we are right now, um, or stop. And I think we did a pretty good job of being people in their early forties 
mid-40s, late-40s, early-50s doing this. Uh, not the perpetual teenager thing that a lot of people kind of go down that route and the cameras get a little fuzzier and pulled back a little more. And all the girls in the front row are paid extras. Uh, yeah, or or, Literally. or the girls are in their mid-50s as well. You know, it, it, and I... I I just didn't. I didn't particularly see myself in that role. I'm now exploring all these other mediums that I'm really thrilled to be working in, other than music. And I'm also, although I'm not prepared nor ready to be a pop star again, a pop singer. I'm dabbling uh, in music, and 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 it feels solo. Good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I started actually uh, about a year and a half ago. A friend called me. Uh, who Casey Spooner from the band Fisher Spooner, um, working on an album for a couple of years and got really stuck and said, I need help with the song. Can you help me? And I went in and I, it was very clear to me what needed to be done. And I told him, but there was another piece of music playing while we were talking. And I said, can I comment on that one as well? And long story short, I wound up producing the album and co-writing every song on it. And so as a producer and writer, I've kind of come back into music through Fisher Spooner, and that record's out um, in the spring. You've been making films as well. You have a film production. Company? I stopped making film. You did. I stopped. Why? I stopped film because I wanted. I needed to just step away from everything. And so when 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 REM disbanded five years ago, I pretty much shuttered both of my production companies. Thrilled that we had done what we did in the um, it was twenty seven years, I guess. Of I, I made about that many feature films, most of them very independent. The most famous one being being John Malkovich. Um, with Spike Jones, but um, I was really ready to just step away from everything and explore other mediums that I not wanted to, but photography need, needed to really look into. And Is photography into. the primary one now? Photography was my first love. Photography before music, and so a lot of the work that I'm doing now, it's not. I don't. I think of myself as an artist who works in all these different mediums, and music is one of them, and obviously the most, the one I'm best known for. But photography has come back around. I'm, I'm doing a book. I'm working on a book now through the guy, uh, Jonathan Berger, brought me to NYU to teach art for the fall semester of 2014. And that was thrilling. And out of that is coming a, a book of, of my work uh, that I'm working with him on. So that's really exciting. Um, you are such a uh, unique and such a kind of particular person. And you know that. Thank you. And, you think... <laughs> and you're performing. Well, I mean, you're performing, you're singing, and your style, and your appearance, and your kind of demeanor and everything. You're, you're very... Yeah. Was acting ever in the cards for you? Did you ever think about going off and making films and acting? I, I was asked. Um, I was offered the role um, of the psychopathic killer in the film Seven. They wanted someone very unexpected. And unfortunately, my band was going on tour the same month that they were started filming. So I wasn't, and, and it required nothing. All, all I had to do was run down some hallways and look scary. There was no dialogue. Um, I'm so glad you didn't do that, by the way. I would have loved doing it. I, 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 I didn't like the way that movie ended. I, they, they changed something at the end that meant that Brad Pitts, rather than Morgan Freeman's character, killed Kevin Spacey in the end, which shouldn't have happened. Uh, it didn't make sense. But, but yeah, I mean, I, no, I don't. I always felt like just because something is available to you through fame or through connections or through proximity, it doesn't mean that you should say yes to it. Yeah. And so I've been very careful with, I mean, the other mediums that I'm working in now are things that sometimes terrify me. I'm doing collage work. 
I'm I I despise collage. I'm working with I'm working with hand handwriting and my own line, and I'm a terrible drawer. But I'm I'm working with the things that I most fear about myself, and I'm and I'm not showing them to the public unless I really think that I've got something. But this book that I'm working on, I'm kind of working through a lot of these things with the book. So it's it's been thrilling. I'm not saying that you should play Boo Radley, but you should play a Boo Radley type of character <laughs> where no matter how unique or odd he may strike people in the hair and make up the whole appearance, deep down inside he's this beautiful soul. I would like you to stick to that. The, no. idiot, the idiot man child. I'm, I'm good well, at that. That's the, what my dog thinks I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the idiot man child. The freaky angel, I like yeah. to call it. The, 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 the weird angel. When no, I no, meet, no, no psycho killer. When I meet um, directors like Todd Haynes uh, and Spike Jones, or I meet uh, actors like yourself or John Malkovich, I realize that these are people that wake up with a need and a desire to do that thing. And I have so much respect for it that um, for me to even try, you know, I don't play trombone either. Why would I, why would I even want to ever try to play trombone? But I, 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 I leave that to those that have that need, that wake up with that desire. My desires are, are in the same ballpark, but slightly different. And so that's where I've tried to spend my short time on this earth, hopefully to 120 or 95, at least I'll take 95, uh, really focusing on the things that I feel like I might be able to, that will challenge me, that will challenge, hopefully, whatever audience I'm able to attain, and will keep me on my toes, keep me curious. I'm going to end this with what I consider, and I don't, I don't assume you're going to agree with me, but beyond my substantial appreciation for you and your artistry and the band and the music and the whole legend of R.E.M. and so forth. I want to say that you occupy a very unique place in my life. Very few pieces of music make the cut and get on this playlist, which is the song I can play in the gym that puts the fire in my ass to go work out. And Crush with Eyeliner is on that playlist. Great song. You fire up those guitars, and I'm like, let's go, baby. I'm thrilled to help push you onto the treadmill, Alec. <laughs> <laughs> R.E.M.'s landmark 1991 record, Out of Time, is being re-released for its 25th anniversary on November 18th. Crush with Eyeliner came later in the band's catalog, and if that doesn't get you going, I don't know what will. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information hey guys you know what this playground could use a wine country huh a redwood forest would be cool ski slopes wait did we just invent california discover why california is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com